Every glass of wine tells a story. These stories reveal hidden histories, flavors, and passions. And sometimes they unravel our darkest desires. In Wine Enthusiast's newest podcast, Vinfamous, journalist Ashley Smith dissects the underbelly of the wine world. We hear from the people who know what it means when the product of love and care becomes the source of greed, arson, and even murder. Each episode takes listeners into the mysterious and historic world of winemaking and the crimes that have since become infamous. This podcast pairs well with wine lovers, history nerds, and crime junkies alike. So grab a glass of your favorite wine and follow the podcast to join them as they delve into the twists and turns behind the all-time most shocking wine crimes. Follow Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and be sure to follow the show so you never miss a scandal. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 261 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by author, cocktail scholar, and ice expert, Camper English. He's the author of the highly touted upcoming monograph entitled The Ice Book, Cool Cubes, Clear Spheres, and Other Chill Cocktail Crafts. Now, we've covered ice on this podcast before, but it's been a while. It was like, I think maybe like episode 12 or something. So we're due for a refresh. And with this new book, Camper is offering up a definitive and comprehensive set of best practices and specific DIY projects that will dazzle your friends and family next time you have them over for drinks. And hey, if you're short on family and friends, there's always the folks on Instagram to impress. But before we dig into the wonders of directional freezing and all it has to offer the home bartender, let's take a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is Navy Grog. To make it, you'll need three quarters of an ounce each of fresh lime juice, white grapefruit juice, and club soda, and one ounce each of gold demerara rum, dark Jamaican rum, white Cuban or Puerto Rican rum, and honey mix, which is essentially simple syrup, but instead of one part sugar and one part water, it's one part honey and one part water. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with cubed ice, give them a good hard shake, and strain them into a large double rocks glass containing an iconic Navy Grog ice cone. What's a Navy Grog ice cone, you may ask? Well, it's the primary reason we're featuring this drink in this particular ice-focused episode. According to Beach Bumberry, our world's most definitive of tiki resources, quote, During World War II, Don the Beachcomber came up with the Navy Grog, one of his most popular and most copied faux Polynesian punches. 
A large part of the grog's appeal was its signature garnish, a cone of ice packed around the straw, which both chilled the drink and transformed it into a conversation piece cocktail. Hundreds of tiki bars once glammed their grogs this way, but now it's a lost art. Over 20 years ago, ex-Beachcombers bartender Tony Ramos, who used to make Navy grogs for Frank Sinatra at the Palm Springs Don the Beachcombers, revealed to the beach bum how tiki bartenders originally made the cone. The bum passed this secret along to the folks at Cocktail Kingdom, who have now faithfully recreated the bespoke metal mold and poking rod used during tiki's 1940s through 1970s heyday. Here's how it works. Tightly pack the metal mold with finely shaved snow ice. You can make snow ice by running crushed ice through a food processor or a snow cone maker. Next, run the poking rod through the center to make a hole for the straw. Then gently remove your ice cone from the metal mold and place the ice cone upright in your freezer. Let that cone freeze for a minimum of four hours until it's frozen solid. When ready to use, remove the hardened cone from the freezer and slide a straw through the hole." End quote. What I love most about the Navy Grog's signature ice piece is that it's both functional and whimsical, part ingredient and part utensil. It also operates courtesy of one of water's most interesting physical properties, its variable surface area. By starting with shaved ice, the Navy Grog ice cone guarantees that those little chips will immediately start melting because of how much surface area they have, how much air is getting in touch with them. And they're gonna do this like right away right? Immediate melting, which isn't generally what you want with ice, but because this all gets packed together in the cone mold, then refrozen in the freezer, the portion of the ice that has melted suddenly becomes the glue that holds the structure together in the end. And P.S., in case you don't feel like springing for a fancy bar tool from Cocktail Kingdom, you can achieve pretty much the same thing by plugging the bottom of a narrow kitchen funnel and using a chopstick to poke the hole for your straw. So, now that you've got a new tiki ice project to break out, next time you batch up some navy grogs, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this frosty deep dive with cocktail scholar and author Camper English, some of the topics we discuss include... The story of Camper's initial tumble down the ice rabbit hole, originating at the legendary New York bar Milk and Honey, and resulting in a whole slew of at-home experiments designed to test the thermodynamics and ergonomics of freezing water. The theory and methods behind directional freezing, and why Camper insists that you can make clear ice using pretty much any set of tools if you just understand what makes this approach work. What we can learn from the way that lakes freeze over in winter, including the structure of crystal lattices and the impact of freezing speed on trapped air bubbles and ice clarity. Then, of course, we dig into some of the techniques and projects from the ice book, including ice tempering and shaping, colored ice, patterned ice, and even freezing objects and garnishes inside of ice cubes. Along the way, we cover the exothermic implications of adding water to ethanol, a practical take on ice aesthetics, why your freezer is set way too damn cold, and much, much more. Let's face it, being the kind of person who can produce perfectly clear ice is a sign that you have mastered two of the most challenging natural elements, water and temperature. 
you know, those two little things that have literally shaped the course of human civilization. But beyond that, a clear ice cube in a glass, whether it's perfectly cuboid or spherical or rough-hewn like a crystal rested from the earth, is a sign that you're consuming something special. It, like a prism, has the potential to focus and magnify certain ineffable aspects of the experience, and I simply don't think you'd see the world's best bar programs emphasizing clear ice if that wasn't the case. So if you're ready to take the leap and start churning out cocktail ice that will drop jaws and elicit delight from your family and friends, be sure to pre-order your copy of the ice book today so that it ships as soon as it's released in just about a month's time on May 23rd. But until then, take a chill pill, pull up a cooler, and enjoy this unclouded conversation with cocktail scholar, author, and ice expert, Camper English. Camper, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So just briefly, before we jump in here, can you uh, give our listeners an intro to you? Who are you and what do you do? Um, my name is Camper English, and I'm a cocktails and spirits writer and speaker and consultant. Um, and I've been sort of studying cocktails exclusively for about 15 years. Uh, my specialty is in the science of cocktails and spirits and how different production methods make things taste differently at the end, and also fun things like um, the science of milk punch clarification and you know just taking something that's supposed to be all fun and making it nerdy at the end. So that's my, um, my specialty within Cocktails and Spirits. Uh, I'm the author of a, a previous book that came out in 2022 called Doctors and Distillers, and that's the history of alcohol and medicine. And then in May 2023, uh, the ice book comes out and that's how to make ice cubes. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, how to make ice cubes that, that sounds on, on one hand, very, uh, very inviting, very, um, accessible to, uh, to a large audience, but I, I have a sense that we might get a little deeper into it than that. And I guess the first, the first question I wanted to pose to you in our conversation is more along the lines of a, an invitation, maybe, maybe not so far as a thought experiment, but I couldn't help but thinking about Mad Men, the show, when I was kind of going through the book and going through all of your past research and experiments on ice. And I wonder if you might be interested in taking the role of Don Draper here and pitching us an ice utopia, right? Because everybody who listens to this podcast, whether they're a bartender or a distiller or a home drinks enthusiast, we all use ice in our drinks. And I want you to paint us a picture of the perfect world, the world in which all the bars and all the home bartenders are operating at their peak ice game. So I don't know if you're game to, to entertain that experiment, but it'd be, it'd be amazing for you to paint me the picture of an ice utopia. Oh, sure. Well, dig, if you will, a picture. Um, every piece of ice is clear and comes in a range of sizes and shapes. And there's a specific ice cube that is specific to every different cocktail that you might want to make at home. Uh, that's my ice utopia. Yeah, that's uh, 
it's it's so fascinating to get into the world of ice because it's one of the aspects of cocktails and drink making that I think is often seen as very much a supporting role. But then the more you learn about it, the more you learn how fundamental and how, I guess, deep you can go into the science of it. So I, I guess maybe as a way of getting into the book, can, can you tell us when you first started getting into ice yourself? I mean, what did some of your first experiments look like and how did it kind of snowball from there into the ice book? Well, way back in uh, 2009 or so, I went to a lecture uh, to learn about the ICE program at uh, Milk and Honey in New York. And they were one of the first bars to be using large ice cubes uh, in their old fashions and other drinks like that. And they didn't have any special equipment, and so the ice wasn't perfectly clear the whole time. And there were some theories uh, put forth by the people who were speaking and uh, other people in the bar industry about how you maximize the clarity of your ice cubes. And I thought that was an interesting problem. So I decided to take it on as a little project to test theories about making clear ice and see what works. And you know, I didn't think for a minute that I was actually going to solve the problem of clear ice in home cocktails, but uh, that ended up happening probably like nine months later. It wasn't full-time work or anything, but I did a whole bunch of experiments and repeat experiments to uh, prove what worked and didn't. So step number one, of course, most of us grew up hearing, in order to make clear ice, you have to boil the water. And apparently no one has actually tried that because it doesn't work. And it's such a popular urban myth that everyone thinks they know it, but it's just not true. And so that was experiment number one. And then I tried things such as boil the water and make ice from it. I'm like, okay, this is cloudy. Take a picture, then let that ice melt and boil that water again, and then make ice with it again over and over and over. And I would share photos of like 12 rounds of boiling and melting the same piece of ice uh, to try to demonstrate that it's not getting any clearer. So that method is not really effective. And I tried you know, some things that were absolutely not going to work, but why not? Things like uh, freezing carbonated water. That is the cloudiest ice you can get, um, freezing carbonated water. And trying to freeze in small layers and anything that might make clearer ice. But what happened was I was noticing, because I was using all sorts of different containers for these experiments, deli takeout containers or a big lasagna pan and things like that. And I Notice a very obvious thing uh, that's true of regular ice cubes too, that the ice was more clear around the edges and outsides of the container. And the inside is where the cloudy bits were. Now, if you put something in a wide flat container like the disposable lasagna pan I had bought from the dollar store, you get a lot, it's really visible that there's a lot of clear ice around the outer edges. And you can just cut that ice off and you have only clear ice cubes. That was kind of a big realization to something that's in retrospect pretty obvious that when ice starts freezing, it starts freezing perfectly clear and the last part of ice to freeze is where it's cloudy. And then the next part of that was, okay, what is causing the cloudiness in the last part of the ice to freeze and can we get rid of that? So uh, I made the next group of experiments that I tried to put a straw into the middle of basically a big uh, container 
of freezing water so that when the last part to freeze was freezing, it would, I don't know, spew out the straw. But that didn't work because the, str- the water in the straw froze also. And I would try to um, just show that if you freeze a big container of ice and only let it go a few a day or so, then you have only clear ice. And then the water that's in the core, that's just still water and it's not cloudy at all. So we, what we could do is just crack open our giant ice cube at that point, have only clear ice. But I couldn't find any way that we could prevent a fully frozen block or any shape of ice from having a cloudy part. Eventually figured out that that cloudy part is, you know, I always say trapped air and impurities, but through the many years and many experiments since figuring this out, realize it's really the trapped air is the big issue and sort of impurities like minerals, uh, you know, calcium, sodium, etc. in the water aren't really that big of a deal unless your water's super filthy. So um, then it was about why the air was getting trapped that way and what to do about it. So long story short, I figured out that if we control how the water freezes, uh, the direction that water freezes, the cloudy part of an ice cube won't be in the middle of the ice cube anymore. But if we could make it at one end of the ice cube, hey, that's good enough because we can just chop off the, the cloudy part at the end. So my big realization was we could just put water into a hard-sided cooler, like a beer cooler, and leave the top off. Put that in the freezer, and uh, the first part of the water to freeze is going to be just the surface of the water because it's insulated on all the other sides. And it forces that water to freeze from the top only towards the bottom. And so the cloudy part that's going to form only forms on the bottom of that block. And uh, then we can sort of, once we've got that basic structure to how to make clear ice, then we can do a lot with it. Um, First thing we could do, so we could let the whole block freeze and we have a cloudy bottom that you can cut off and a clear top that you can use. Or if we only let it freeze for a day or two or three we'll have only clear ice forming from the top down to the bottom. And we have a slab of clear ice exclusively that we can use for things. And kind of everything stems from from that experiment. And here we are over 10 years later, and uh, I've got a whole book on sort of what to do, how to make ice, and then what to do with it afterward. Yeah, obviously, the process that you're referring to is something that's you know, that is very well known in the bar world these days, you know, directional freezing that notion. And I I think it's, I think it's very, I guess, fitting that, that your quest started out at like what we would, many of us would consider to be like the beginning of the craft cocktail movement, milk and honey, literally the establishment on the East coast that put it on the map. And, you know, it, it, it's funny because, I too, back when I first started trying to make spirits and cocktails, tried the boil, boil the water technique. I tried a bunch of things. And, you know, those of us who live in cities don't have, you know, the luxury in many cases of a lot of freezer space. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've struggled through that and, and I've, I've located a, a few good solutions. Uh, and I, I feel like since we've talked about the cooler technique, this might be a logical place to maybe present some of the other options, like for folks who are listening, who don't have enough room to do like the igloo cooler directional freeze method, and then, you know, get their spouse to allow them to 
take up valuable freezer space with the ice that they have then chipped away and cut and shaped. What are some of the other options on the market? I know that you've done a lot with ice, the like individual ice spheres as well. Right. So based on the the basic knowledge of how ice freezes and that if we can tr- control the direction of it, um, we can control the clarity of it. A lot of producers have made now commercial products. And what those look like is like, imagine if you will, <laughs> that same uh, beer cooler in your freezer and you put an ice tray on the top surface of the water, but you poke holes in the bottom of every, every tray in the ice cube tray. So now the water's at the surface of the tray as well as the surface of the cooler. The water will start freezing clear as it does. And as uh, it freezes clear, pushing down to cloudy, it actually pushes out that trapped air in the, the tray into the water reservoir, essentially beneath the, the holes in the tray. And so with that basic theory, a lot of manufacturers have produced clear ice trays. And those come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, uh, not all of which take up you know, 90% of your freezer like the big cooler does. So there are some that will make just one or two cubes that are still kind of bulky because you need a lot of extra space uh, underneath your ice cube tray, but they can make a cube at a time or even a sphere at a time or two or, or eight in some cases, but it's all kind of starts with the same theory and with different shapes and sizes of insulated containers as a solution. Yeah, I have one of those. It's, um, I don't know, it's maybe about, you know, a foot, foot and a quarter by maybe six inches by six inches. And, you know, it gets the job done and it makes maybe 12 one inch cubes, which is, which is great unless, you know, you need, you need the, the two by two, you know, big cube, but yeah, it's, it's, it works like a charm every time. The only thing that I've found, I don't know that, I don't know if you've encountered it, but the one thing I find with those particular uh, devices is that they are much easier to use if you set a reminder for yourself on your phone or a calendar reminder to actually extract it before they are completely frozen solid. I don't know if you've you've encountered oh, that. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's like uh, a, a very important thing to do, and we always forget. And I think of several place in uh, the ice book coming out, I say you know put. Now, step one, step two, whatever, put it in your freezer, set an alarm <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's uh, we're prone to forget how long things are freezing. I mean, I've been at this for a long time and I'm constantly like, has it been two days or is it three days? And if I let <laughs> it go too long, everything freezes solid. So uh, as we know, when water freezes, it expands. And if we're thinking of that hard-sided cooler again, if you keep freezing it solid over and over and over again, it's going to crack eventually. And the same is true for a lot, but probably not all of the clear ice making trays that are commercially available. But they're certainly easier to remove from the tray if the water is only frozen into ice in the part that you want, and then you pull off the tray. It's just so much easier when it's not an entire encrusted block and you're trying to pull out the ice off the the top that you want from it. But yeah, that's a major like consideration in making clear ice is like always set an alarm. I do, um, I have tape that, and a Sharpie that I keep near the freezer. And every time I'm doing an ice experiment, which is 
nearly all of the time. I uh, put a piece of tape on the freezer door of when I need to harvest the ice out of the freezer. Otherwise, I will definitely forget. Yeah, that's really good advice. And, you know, like going in a almost a completely different direction from that, one of the things that I always think about when I when I think back on my journey through ice is uh, I, in reading Imbibe, uh, Dave Wondrich obviously tells this beautiful story of these, you know, these crusty miners in California who would uh, pack snow and ice from the mountains and the and the streams onto their mules as they would come back from their claims and get back to the camp or whatever vestige of civilization where there was a saloon and then use that to, you know, chill or and or dilute their drinks. And it strikes me that in doing all of this research, I'm sure that you've gone back in history, you know, back to the time when, you know, we were actually cutting clear ice straight out of lakes. And I'm wondering if there are any tidbits or any, any learnings that you were able to glean from the historical ways, the maybe non like, you know, actual Freon freezer ways that we used to harvest and transport and shape ice. I don't know if there's anything that, that jumps out to you. Well, um, in studying the history of, of ice harvest, when, and when I was trying to figure out the whole thing that becomes known as directional freezing, I was thinking, well, why are ponds clear often? If you go ice skating, sometimes you're watching fish swimming around underneath you. And so that, along with the observation that ice was clear at the edge of the tray as it's freezing, led me to sort of help. Uh, it all came together to figure out I could use a cooler for it. Um, because I wasn't sure what it was about a pond that was making the ice clear in a pond. Is it large surface area? And that's how I got to the lasagna pan, and that's how I got to directional freezing. But um, I didn't really fully understand that it was um, that in a pond, it's the water is freezing from top towards the bottom as well. And it's just insulated underneath by you know planet Earth. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, so that was helpful. And initially, I was before the nomenclature of directional freezing became sort of settled, I would sometimes call it the pond method or the cooler method. And then kind of just everyone coalesced upon the phrase directional freezing because it explains what is happening rather than the method of achieving it. And um, that's been, I think, helpful for everyone because you kind of get it when you hear directional freezing, like, oh, okay, you're freezing in one direction. <laughs> so that was one thing that uh, looking at nature was helpful. But then also I read an amazing book called Ice by writer Mariana Gosnell. And it's like this 500 or so page book about how nature works. And in the first chapter, she goes to a lake and gets a house and she watches the lake freeze over. And she talks to scientists about how it's freezing and uh, what's going on. And it's really complicated because we know water changes density, the colder or warmer it is. And um, as it's getting approaching the freezing temperature, it's floating and sinking and it makes ice freeze clear in the way that it does uh, based on its physical properties, which are way too uh, complicated to explain right now. But that was also helpful in thinking about, you know, once I had figured out the method, but then trying to figure out, well, what's really happening there. And it's the way that the water molecules lock together to form a crystal to make an ice crystal. And they push out that anything trapped in them because the, the crystal lattice is kind of too tight to hold these trapped uh, air molecules in them. And so it actually pushes things out of the way. And that 
makes sense as to why ice freezes the way it does. And also, uh, as the author noted in that book, if a lake freezes really slow, the ice will be really clear. And if a lake freezes fast, uh, the ice crystals form and they'll form like right around air bubbles and minerals and pockets like that. So scientists can look at a lake and tell you how (laughs) it was like really cold, really fast or a slow freeze in it. And that was also very useful to my understanding of how ice freezes. And also, if we want to make better ice in our home freezer, to understand that the warmest temperature that we can get that's still beneath uh, freezing temperature is ideal because it's, it's going to make the most clear ice because it's uh, forming the slowest. And so a lot of people, if they're struggling with making ice in their home freezer, I'm like, is your freezer jacked all the way to the coldest setting? Um, Maybe rethink that. Maybe that's unnecessary. And your ice will be better if you turn it up. Yeah, that's, you know, you took the question and answered it before I even had the chance to ask it, because I was going to say, I am one of these folks who grew up a skating on ponds. And one of the things, of course, that you notice besides the fish and you know the 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 weeds that you can see it's it, it's a fun surreal experience if the, if it's not you know previously covered in snow but you also see these in many cases these large bubbles that are trapped and so the explanation of the speed of the freeze makes complete sense there and you know i was also kind of answering it in my own mind by saying like whoa okay like if i'm skating on a pond i'm essentially skating on a large, shallow-ish shaped ice cube. So wouldn't it be fair that if we scaled an ice cube from our freezer to the size of said pond that I'm skating on, that we might also notice some two scale bubbles like the one that I'm kind of curious about? Like, I don't know, it just, it kind of makes sense to me. I don't know if you, I don't know if that analogy works. Well, I certainly see in some instances when I'm freezing water in a cooler, I see the bubbles that look just like those pond bubbles. And I think sometimes what happens is if you sort of knock the cooler as it's in the process of freezing, the water that is being pushed to the bottom of the cooler, if it all kind of comes up together and a bubble floats up, it's going to be stuck to the underside of that the ice that's freezing and you'll get a bubble and the ice will continue freezing around it to beneath. I mean, most of the time our air looks really like cloudy ice in the, in the bottom of the cooler, but occasionally you get that like perfect weird alien bubble in the middle of an ice block. And it's just exactly uh, what's happening in a pond. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. And I, I, it's great talking with somebody who's had a, so many reps, if that makes any sense, who's had so many different iterations and experiments to be able to play with this stuff because you really have seen it all or seen it most. And I, you know, one of the things that I admire about academics, your online digital resource for people who are curious about these phenomena is the fact that, you know, you've got some folks asking questions like, oh yeah, well, here's how you might troubleshoot that. So it's, I, I can't recommend that enough for our listeners. We'll of course link to it over on the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. 
Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. But we're here to talk about a book. And one of the questions that I'm always curious to ask authors, especially experienced ones like yourself, is how you went about organizing this book so that it was useful as a resource in the way that you intended it to be useful. Um, so can you just essentially pitch us the book and and how, if someone were to pre-order it uh, or order it upon hearing this conversation, they should optimally deploy it to just juice their ice game and blow away their friends and family? <laughs> uh, sure. Well, I tried to make it so that you could, so I know the people who are going to read the book are going to instantly turn to page 30 or whatever and try to make the ice there without reading this stuff in the beginning. So I did try to keep it very repetitive and fairly simple, but the way that one should read it is from beginning uh, towards the end. So first we learn how to make clear ice and the theory of making clear ice. Because uh, just like in this conversation, it's really important to understand what's going on beca uh, because if something goes wrong, we can fix it knowing what's happening. And so there's a lot of pages of troubleshooting in the book because I get messaged on every social media platform uh, uh, possible about like, hey, I'm having a problem. And people will just send me pictures of their ice to troubleshoot online. And that actually takes up a lot of my time. But um, I uh, just, I've learned a lot because not everybody's water is the same. Not everybody's freezer is the same. Not everybody's you know, freezing container is the same as insulated in the same way. And so learning from other people's experiments, I've learned a lot more uh, general theory. So I'm always like, okay, problem number one is your freezer too cold. Problem number two is, is uh, do you have kids who are like opening, pulling out ice cream and then slamming the freezer door closed? <laughs> because that's how you get bubbles um, in, in, your, in your ice block. And then some other, uh, other theories, like if the, if your cooler is setting on a, uh, like a, a shelf with where the bottom isn't against a, a solid surface, but against uh, a rack, um, let's say, then it's getting a lot more air exposure and it can start freezing from the bottom to the top, even though the container's insulated a bit. So maybe you want to just put a towel down before you put your cooler down. And that was, um, that was an issue that I was talking to someone yesterday about who messaged me <laughs> on, on Facebook. So I provide that 
you know, the base information and then the troubleshooting. And then we go into everything that we might do to make clear ice. And then our sort of phase two of the book is what to do with a clear ice now you've made it. Because particularly if you're making a slab of ice in a cooler, you've got a big slab of ice and now you've got to cut it up because that doesn't fit in a, a cocktail glass as a 12 inch by a six inch or whatever slab. And so how do we cut up that slab? What's the easiest and most efficient and fun way to do that? And then uh, cut it into different shapes and carving ice diamonds and uh, different ways to use that ice. And then as we were talking earlier about the ice cube, the commercial ice cube trays, um, we can make those ourselves by poking holes in the bottom of silicone ice cube trays and suspending them in our cooler. And there's a few different ways to do that, which I cover, and some are more efficient than others. And then we can use sort of novelty silicone ice trays, like say the alphabet trays, poke holes in the bottom of those, and now we have shaped ice in the alphabet that comes out perfectly clear. And so there's a lot of ways to hack other products that are out there. And then after we've done that, then I do go into some ice that is not clear, that is colored and flavored. But um, a lot of the middle of the book is freezing objects inside the middle of ice cubes. And some of the most spectacular pictures in the book, like the cover shot is a, a martini olive on an ice pick. And that's the pick goes through a big cube and the olive is frozen in the center of the cube. And it's sort of like kablam <laughs> that's what we can do if you if you know what you're doing and i have all sorts of things i've frozen in spheres and spears and uh not so much ice diamonds yet but i'll get there <laughs> and uh ways to also pattern our ice now once we have made clear ice so we can put things inside a cube and we can put things on the outside of the cube and um, the whole book, I call it like arts and crafts that you can drink at the end, because that's really what it is. Uh, I don't think, you know, any of this ice is necessary. It's all just awesome. Um, it's, a, it's a fun project. And continually, like I'll wander stores when I travel or just in a different part of town that might sell like little souvenirs and i'm like what can i freeze into an ice cube and that's my <laughs> that's how i walk around stores these days like what's small and and funky looking and and what can i do with that and uh just keep making more ridiculous ice cubes out of various objects i find around town yeah it it, it occurs to me that like when you were when you were just describing that it it just reminded me of the show the office where jim continuously just puts people's stuff in jello molds. And so if you were in that position, you would just be, you would be, you'd be freezing staplers and all that stuff. Okay. I, I want to talk a little bit about the patterning and tempering of ice. And I don't you know, generally, I have an arts background and generally I have an aesthetic in mind that I prefer over others, right? I, I, I know what I like and, and I know, either how to achieve it at home or how to go to a bar and give the bartender some signposts that might lead to that aesthetic being realized. But with ice, it's, it just, it's so malleable, not literally, but, but there's so much you can do with it that I, I don't know that I've really centered on uh, the one or two methods of shaping it that are the most appealing to me because I can imagine like, 
the uh, I feel like this it's a very Japanese approach to like take a, a very rough chunk of ice and then you know kind of um, carve it down into a sphere, but not a perfect sphere. You know, something with perhaps a little bit of wabi sabi to it. Um, on the other hand, there are these beautiful kind of ice patterners that are as you said, uh, if you, you've said in the past kind of dominating the drinkstagram where you can create the cross hatch patterns or these different patterns on ice, um, that are very, very clean. And it's almost like, you know, taking the patterns that we would use on our glassware and flipping it inside out. And so the pattern's actually on the ice instead of in the glass. And so I, I don't know which of those is more appealing to me, but do you have a theory of ice aesthetics and when certain aesthetics, are deployed optimally? Is that a weird question? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know if there are two weird questions when it comes to ice. Uh, I've, I've got most of them, although that might be a new one. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would say, I think if you're trying to show handcraftedness and you've got a hand carved sphere and it's a little bumpy on the surface and they do that in, uh, some bars in the country and you know that that was made with an ice pick that's very special and handcrafted and it just sort of tells you something about where you are and where you're drinking and um the ones that are uh, if you use the the ice ball press um it's which is a big heavy metal um press with a hole in the middle and you put a block of ice in there and uh, the top comes down and just presses it and melts all the water except for the sphere in the middle those spheres come out so delightfully, perfectly round, and the surface is perfectly smooth. And they're very aesthetically pleasing in and out of the glass as well. But it's not necessarily saying the same thing that a hand-carved sphere is as, as far as at service. Now, is one of those better than the other once it's in the drink? I do not think so. <laughs> I think if they're the same size, it's it's fine. Uh, when it comes to the pattern ice, like the crosshass cross hatch ice and things um, those don't last forever in the drink and so what we want to do and um, when we're putting those in the glass is to have the you know the most dramatic pattern on top and to be filling our glass so that it's above the surface of the water and it's going to last the longest i have had some sort of internet pushback by people who see this ridiculous pattern ice I mean, like, okay, you've just created extra surface area by making this pattern that's going to melt faster than this big ice cube that, you know, its job is to melt slowly. I'm like, yeah, fair, but it also looks awesome. So why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, surface area brings up a whole separate set of, of things. And I, I don't know that you've gotten into this, but, you know, one thing that, I recently learned about was the, um, you know, going back to the Japanese aesthetic was the something called the hard shake. And obviously whenever we're shaking ice in a cocktail tin, you know, the harder you shake the ice, the smaller the ice is when it goes in there and a number of other factors is going to influence the overall dilution of the drink. So being that you just brought up surface area, are there any other, besides the petulant objections of people who are just, you know, splitting hairs on the internet, when it comes to surface area, are there any learnings or, you know, golden rules that you would encourage our listeners to keep in mind as they try and make the perfect cocktail? Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, I think generally when we're thinking about what ice does in a drink, 
we're not always thinking of it as this active process where the ice, in order for the drink to get colder, the ice has to be melting. And in order for, and when the ice melts, it gets more watery. So we're dealing with chilling and dilution, and those are directly related. Dave Arnold's book, Liquid Intelligence, does a fantastic job of really explaining the science uh, behind all of that. And he starts with the model of a kind of an ice cube at the bar that's at kind of room temperature, but is melting and says in that system, there's no uh, chilling without dilution. So your ice cube is never just sitting in the glass un until the temperature equalizes. It's always diluting if it's getting colder. There are, are ways to hack that. Like if you keep your shaker in the freezer first, you've got some chilling without dilution because you're getting it from the shaker, for example. So if we think about, say, a, you know, mint julep versus an old fashioned on a big sphere or something like that, we have the mint julep has a lot of small pieces of ice, which means overall there's a ton of surface area, uh, which means a lot of fast melting and rapid dilution. Whereas a big sphere has the lowest surface area to volume ratio. And if it's bigger than you have, you're maximizing that you have the least surface area possible in your ice sphere in a glass and it's going to melt slower. It's still going to melt, but um, it's going to be much slower. And if you don't want a lot of dilution fast, then that's ideal. So if you think about like, if you took one of those big, perfect two inch ice spheres and pour a Coca-Cola over it, like yuck, it's, it is the wrong <laughs> ice for that drink. It's beautiful ice, but it's, it's not achieving the same thing as the ice that comes out of the machine at the 7-Eleven or whatever. That gets your, your cola nice and cold really fast and take it back to your hot car and drink it, for example. So uh, I, when we're choosing the right ice for the drink, we've got to be thinking about, about what we want to accomplish. You could pre-dilute the drink more in the shaking process. Let's say you put really small ice into your cocktail shaker and you dilute it as much as you want it to dilute. And then you pour it over one big ice cube and it's really not going to dilute anymore, not very much uh, at any speed. And that big cube is just keeping it cold. Um, but you've sort of planned for that by using uh, more dilution in the shaker. And so uh, in the new book out, by um, Toby Malone from the Violet Hour in uh, Chicago, he talks about the different timing of shakes based on how you're going to serve the drink in which glass and, and what ice. And so things are a shake that will, you can shake something and then have it keep diluting further in the glass if you're pouring it over crushed ice, say. You want a lot less dilution in the shaker versus that example I just gave about getting it real wet and then pouring it on a big cube that's not going to melt that much faster. And I think yeah. that's, you know, that's advanced bartending stuff when you're like uh, planning out in advance the dilution based on the glass and the ice and all of that. But it's uh, it's cool that you can micromanage it that much if you want to. And, and I sure do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. That's th this is a safe space to talk about all that, all that nerdy <laughs> complexity. I want to hit tempering really fast before we jump into a little bit of lightning round stuff, but, but you know, this is, this is my little nerdy soliloquy. I've been studying uh, complex adaptive systems recently and, and all the theory and science behind that. And it, it strikes me 
that when you think about a cocktail or even just a straight pour of spirits placed on on a piece of ice, really what you're talking about is a complex system. You've got a lot of molecules and particles that are bumping against one another, combining and recombining with one another and transforming from moment to moment. They're certainly transforming in the cocktail shaker very rapidly, but yes, you know, as, as we've noted, things transform in the glass as things chill and as they dilute. And there's a lot of different complex variables that affect that. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things to me about ice and cocktails is how they directly relate to the very basic physics of it is that cocktails are not just complex systems. They're complex thermodynamic systems. They, the cocktail is an enactment of entropy and order, you know, taking something that is warm, something that has a lot of information in it, a lot of surface area, and then taking it to a transformed and more chilled state, but that is still kind of changing over time as you, another complex system, interact with it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, as, as, much as, it's, as much as it might seem nerdy to think about like all this weird timing and all these different variables... I personally get a lot of pleasure out of that, and it seems like you do as well. Oh, absolutely. And if we just are thinking just not about ice, but about water and what that does in dilution to a spirit, that's its own whole science because it uh, allows, say, a high-proof spirit. You add some water. Now that's going to allow some of the aromatic compounds to float up out of that glass. If we were diluting a barrel-proof spirit down to 40% ABV at our cognac distillery, say, um, there's mm -hmm. long, slow processes uh, in order to do that. You don't just dump a bunch of water in your cognac or actual chemical changes happen. You get saponification. It tastes like soap at the end. So you use cool water slowly. And in the case of cognac, they actually, over the years, they take it out of the barrel, dilute a little bit, put it back in the barrel, take it out of the barrel, dilute a little bit more because they know what the final proof is going to be. And all of that chemistry and physics that's going on there is fascinating um, that it's a, it's an exothermic reaction to add water to alcohol and distillers have to be wary of that. Uh, now, I did do um, a talk at Tales of the Cocktail one year about water and cocktails and spirits. And we did a little experiment where do you add whiskey to the water or water to the whiskey? Um, and how does it taste a little bit different one way or the other way? And that was pretty interesting, even if we're maybe like we're projecting uh, our, an answer on it, <laughs> like when using like a half ounce of whiskey in a glass compared to, you know, an entire barrel's worth of whiskey, you can really watch the temperature raise when you add a water to it you just stick a thermometer in there. But if you're a fan of whiskey that's diluted a little bit with water, try it one way and the other way and um, see if you think the aromatics change um, in one way or the other way. Yeah, so that's how about that? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is, that is quite something. I mean, the, the, the wonders never, never cease when, when you're in the world of spirits, cocktails and, and all this, all this crazy science. Um, Quick note on tempering. This is something I came across really recently. I know we're running up on time here, but if you had to explain what tempering is and how to achieve it and when to achieve it, basically to like, you know, explain it to like a five-year-old, how would you explain the notion of tempering ice to somebody who's just starting on their home bartending journey? Sure. Well, tempering the ice is basically leaving it sit out at room temperature until it uh, warms up a little bit. 
because if we take our ice directly out of a cold freezer, if you think about dropping that immediately into a glass, you, you can hear the sound in your head, like the crackle, crackle of the ice cracking um, because we've gone from real cold to, to warmer and it causes the ice to shatter because remember it's changing density as uh, water freezes into ice and um, when people are cutting up ice at home and this is where tempering really comes into play at bar programs the sort of best practices according to people who do it a lot is to take your block of ice out let it sit out so ice in your freezer if it's clear ice it'll look super clear you put it on the counter and after five minutes or so it'll be frosty all over the surface and we want to wait longer until it's uh, the surface is no longer frosty and then it looks sort of clear and wet sitting out that's a, a good time to start cutting up that ice if we want to have it not shatter in the process and we want to have nice uh, straight cuts when we're cutting a block into cubes on the other hand, if you want to just have clear ice that you smash up into random size ice cubes, just pull right out of the freezer and start bashing away with a big ice pick <laughs> and you will achieve that. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Well, when it comes to the, the tools and the techniques, uh, we will direct our listeners, of course, to your book. The full title, for those of you who want to punch it in your phones right now, is The Ice Book colon, cool cubes, clear spheres, and other chill cocktail crafts. Uh, when will that be launching and available for either pre-order or uh, direct order? Uh, the book is available for pre-order now um, on your regular uh, retail websites, or you can always walk into a local bookstore and ask them to place an order and they'll call you when it comes in. The official publication date is May 23rd, 2023, although uh, I'm under the impression that if you order it earlier, it might just show up earlier. It's very confusing, <laughs> but um, so you might get it earlier than May 23rd, um, but after May 1st uh, sometime. Um, but the 23rd by, uh, but the latest. Beautiful. Beautiful. As I mentioned, we'll have links to that over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And now just a couple of quick lightning round questions. The first one is we've been talking about ice this whole time. We've been dancing around spirits and cocktails. Now's, now's when we get actually into it. You got a desert Island scenario, no prospect of rescue. Interpret the rules of your desert Island. However you please. Some people are survivalists. Some people are idealists in this situation. Uh, you get one bottle of straight spirits and one cocktail that you either have on draft or all of the ingredients to make. What is your bottle and what is your cocktail? Let's see my, well, I'll do my cocktail first um, because this Island is hot in my brain. And so I'm mm -hmm. going to need gin, gin and tonics. That's also going <laughs> to prevent malaria. So um, it's just, it's just smart thinking on my half, my behalf, but, um, and a, as far as a bottle, um, I, lately I'm just drinking so much bourbon. Um, and I don't have a, um, a one specific bottle when it comes to that bourbon that, that I want in my head. But we'll just say a, a bottle of bottled and bond. Um, so 50% ABV bourbon. Let's say for now, let's say that that George Dickel 13-year-old bottled and bond um, because that came out a couple years ago and was delicious. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And, you know, you're, you're covering all your bases there. You got your clear refreshing and you got your, you know, your darker contemplative spirit. Yeah, I know um, what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. 
Last one here, cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you sip on? You can also describe the ice if that's, you know, if that's something you want to do, but just kind of paint us a picture. Boy, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's do Louis Pasteur <laughs> because in my Ooh. last book, Doctors and Distillers, I learned what an amazing genius he was and how he had like three different eras of solving world problems. And I think is one of the <laughs> most effective smart people um, in, in history. I, even though I don't speak enough French that I would probably understand him, but uh, uh, he would be someone historically who I would love to meet. Uh, what are we drinking? Um, well, he did studies on fermentation in beer and wine and actually uh, told, taught the world, you know, pasteurization, of course, but um, also how to prevent uh, the spoilage of beer and wine. So I'd have to go, despite the fact I'm not a beer guy, I would be drinking a beer with Louis Pasteur. <laughs> mm, mm. Very nice. Very nice. Well, we can assume the Star Trek Universal Translator for you, so, so you could have a, a nice conversation. But uh, but Camper, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your enthusiasm. As somebody who shares the enthusiasm without as much technical know-how or uh, iterative practice as you, uh, definitely, definitely a huge admirer. And um, for those of you who are listening... We just scratched the surface here. We, we, we just hit that first level of directional freezing and there's still a huge reservoir of, of water that, that you can dive into and, and observe as it freezes in the rest of the book. So I would encourage you to hit the link in the show notes uh, or check out the ice book wherever you purchase your books. And Camper, I want to thank you for being a guest right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. And thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.
This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Ice Insights courtesy of Camper English, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.